Welcome to this week's CE Pro Podcast. I'm Executive Editor Arlen Schweiger. You probably know Kim Lancaster as the owner of influential PR firm Caster Communications, whose wide-ranging roster of clients recently added Crestron. But we like going behind the scenes a little bit of some of the personalities that make up the custom electronics industry. And this week, Kim shares some of the key ingredients that feed her passion as a food and wine connoisseur and how you can get into some farm to table too. Kim Lancaster, founder of veteran PR firm Caster Communications. Thanks for joining me and senior editor Bob Archer on the CE Pro podcast. Hi, Bob. Hi, Arlen. How are you guys? I'm doing well. So, Kim, you know, you've been a fixture in the custom electronics industry for a long time now. But one of the things that we wanted to do on to, uh, this week's podcast is, you know, talk to you a bit about one of your other passions, which is. You know, you've uh, become a bit of a foodie. I know people know you for that. And, uh, you know, you've said that you weren't that way back when you started in the, in the industry. So maybe we could just start off by telling us that there was a dinner or a restaurant or something like that that kind of changed your outlook um, with food and going out to restaurants. Sure. Uh, you know, the funny part of my life is I grew up in a pretty blue collar home. So I, you know, it was a big deal if we went to like Ponderosa, you know, once every four or five months and went to the buffet, you know, it was just sort of a, not something that we did as in my whole life growing up. So it really wasn't an experience that I was exposed to until I was a young adult basically. And when you go into PR, you quickly find yourself in travel and on the road and Lots of entertaining clients and things like that, right? Lots of entertaining clients, lots of entertaining media. Uh, and so my very first, oh my God moment was actually a dinner with Michael Fremer, who was writing for Stereophile Magazine at the time. And he was a client of the agency I worked with. We did PR for Stereophile and the, the uh, Stereophile show, which I think was called the Hi-Fi show at the time, it was in the 90s. And Michael was, um, he was a big wine guy and food guy. And so he picked this restaurant and I just was so overwhelmed with everything that was happening. And at that time in my life, I, I would probably have described myself as not adventurous in eater either. You know, it was like, oh, chicken parmesan or, you know, oh, steak and a potato kind of a thing. So Michael had kind of ordered the whole thing up, the wine and the every bite of food. I was like, wow, this is crazy. I, I've never had anything like this. And I was probably, you know, maybe 25 at the time, 24, 25. So um, we're talking about 25 years ago, essentially for me. And it started a moment that started an adventure in food. Um, the first time I had sushi, I was with Brent Butterworth. So things like that. I can associate my introductions to very different food and new food starting the path for me that became this, what I would describe a core tenet of my life. Like I cook, I grow, I plan major food events for people and I partake in them wildly wherever I go. I do massive research for everything. So that's how it started and um, the rest sort of fell over the years, but it's, I love it. I, I love to eat. <laughs> Although I couldn't be a food blogger because I would be enormous. <laughs> it would never work. 
I couldn't do it. I love everything too. That's the other problem is I'm always, I very rarely have I met a meal I don't love. <laughs> Lots of exercise time. Kim, you alluded to this in uh, responding to Arlen's question, but over the years, how has your dedication to the hobby of being a foodie grown to influence not only your PR dinners and client meetings, but also the family dinners at home, which right now are probably the highest priority in the uh, Lancaster household? Yeah, seriously. The, um, so it was sort of funny. As I got into it, it allowed me very often as the PR person to pick the restaurants. And so in addition to always being a guest at what were some pretty phenomenal uh, dinners over the years, I started to get the hang of how to size a restaurant for what it could do and appeal to all the people that would be there, kind of understanding the different um, palettes and what people liked. And, you know, now it's much more complicated on the work side for the record because everybody's got allergies and I've got my vegans and I've got my, uh, I've got my vegetarians and I've got my pescatarians and I have my dairy free and my gluten free. Mother of Lord, I have a, I literally have a list of all of our press people and who eats what. <laughs> so I look at that when we're going into towns, but what started to happen for Castor was we started to get our own little reputation for having these phenomenal press dinners. And it became kind of cool because it was like, oh, you know, some, I think Sandy Gross probably was the only person who had as good a reputation for having amazing press dinner or amazing, yeah, press dinners and food dinner experiences is what I have kind of become known for. So by eat, eating that way, like all, and the press would always kind of come and it would be very fun to be like, oh, each can only send two people. So only two of us get to come this year or things like that. So, you know, it, it became its own part of my brand and our brand, which was sort of fun. Um, but it's not pretend either, right? So I, at home, I mean, I grow a, almost a 550 square foot garden which is kind of insane for a person. Like we make so much food, my whole team jokes that, you know, I, I keep them in a, in a full-time CSA for the summer. Um, Pete said, if things come any worse with the pandemic and lack of things, at least he knows he will have zucchini. <laughs> so Kim, can you walk us through how you got, yeah, I mean, gardens are, are very big endeavors and not something that people can, you know, really get into lightly. It's one of those, you kind of need to be all in on it. Can you tell us about how that adventure has gone in terms of, you know, not only planting what you'd like, but also, you know, what your family needs, things that your kids like, and, you know, how that fits into your overall um, eating standards. And being in Rhode Island, remember, it's not like I'm in a, you know, 12 season part of the country. I'm right, right. A, five month part of the country and so you know I, I do plan so I plan out my garden so first of all I started it very small I think my you know my first garden was um, probably in my first house so it probably was 20 years ago but you know it was tomatoes and basil and they sort of the, the easy things and you know if I was lucky I got two tomatoes out of it and a couple of herbs and from there but I I can't believe I'm gonna say this in public I subscribe and received magazines on gardening <laughs> and like how to pair the different vegetables. And mm -hmm. like, if you plant garlic uh, near tomatoes, it helps keep bugs away without having to use herbicides. So everything's organic. So there's a whole structure to it. I mean, it's probably like testing gear, right? You start to learn things and you apply it. So 
Um, I've had a couple of times where and we moved a lot. I, when we moved to our current house, I started a pretty decent garden, which kind of got bigger and bigger. And three years ago, I went all in on, I basically turned, turned over an entire section of our lawn. We have a, we have a one acre piece of property, so it's kind of nice. Um, but we have a section that's over on the um, west side of our house, so it's away from the wind because we're near the water. And, but yet it gets a lot of sun, but I have to keep the salt wind off all the, off the vegetables, they'll just burn all the leaves, they'll be totally decimated. So just over time, a lot of trial and error, I would figure out how much to plant. Sometimes I planted too much. I'm, I still like, I have this fear of something's not gonna come in. So I'm like, oh, I'll just plant one or two extra plants, but then everything comes in. And so you do end up with, with, um, overages of food, but that works out because lots of people like to share and all that stuff. So that part is really good, but I do have a total variety. So I, right now my garden has, um, six varieties of lettuce. Uh, I have 10 different herbs growing. Um, I prize myself on like my rosemary and my, my sage, which, you know, throwing sage in to and crisping it up and putting it on a pasta dish. Oh yes. Toast up some pine nuts, a little bit of ghee, some fresh salt, Oh, unbelievable stuff. So, but it, when you're able to just go snip it from the garden or pull it off and it's still warm from the sun, what I found over the years was that my kids would eat more too, right? So everything they won't touch in the wintertime, if we bought it from Whole Foods, you know, they would eat when it came from my garden. So when you start doing that, I started to figure out different ways to one, extend our growing season. Um, add new vegetables so I would, as sections died out, I would bring in like what gets planted mid-July into what I need for the fall. Um, I do some root vegetables. I got into canning, which pickling, like it went, <laughs> just like so many things I do, it went a little overboard. So um, some things had to get pulled back because <laughs> Joe was like, what are you gonna be a farmer? <laughs> And I mean, given the choice, yes, yes. I mean, my goal is chickens, goats, 25 acres in Vermont. Yeah, that's my retirement plan, but. <laughs> there you go, right, right next to Stowe so you can go skiing too, right? Exactly, I mean, <laughs> and it, the property is so much less expensive than Rhode Island, so I could buy all that acreage and it would be wonderful, but he doesn't, he's not on board with this idea yet. <laughs> so, so in the meantime, I do all this and then I cook, I cook from our garden. So I, we, um, we, I tend to meal plan. So I plan out what I do. Um, I, I mimic meals that I've had in restaurants, which has become kind of fun of trying to like how to put meals together. Um, we play chopped as a family of how fast I can cook and how, what I can put into ingredients. Like I'm not great at food shopping. So sometimes it's a, what do we got and how do we make food out of it scenario and, and make a good meal and a meal that everybody will eat. Um, so it's taught me a lot of things of by being a foodie and exploring sort of your palate, you're opened up to all of these things in terms of the kind of foods you can eat, but what goes well with each other. And, you know, I, like 10 years ago, I got really friendly with a bunch of the young um, chefs, the local, as, as the farm to table movement grew, um, because I was, again, already sort of a fangirl, 
I, you know, was on top of social media. So I was early in on the social game and I was following all these chefs that were getting like James Baird nominations and, you know, and then they were like, oh, hey, Kim and Joe, you guys are here at a restaurant again, because <laughs> those were the days. But, um, you know, it, So was it, it mostly on Instagram that you would see their stuff or Twitter or both? Uh, so I, I did Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Um, so actually, even now, the way if you look at my social, I do food only on Instagram, except for Twitter, which has overflow when I'm like working stuff. Um, but like my Instagram account, I don't use for like work stuff. Like, so we have a caster Instagram, but Instagram was made for food photos, in my opinion. Like, you know, yeah, okay, sure, show me a picture of your kid, but I can see that on Facebook. So I also do put dog pictures on there. I like lots of pictures of dogs. So <laughs> that's my more, no, very few family photos. Like they might scooch in there if the kids are having something super fun, um, but it's the concentration of it. But it, I helped a bunch of local chefs start their social pages. Some of them are enormous now. You know, you know, guys that are in the, you know, fifty thousand plus in terms of influencers, and they're you know hardcore chefs. So most of my early chef friends have won or at least honored in a James Beard Award, which is pretty cool. So in the Rhode Island, New England market. So, cause clearly up here, I'm pretty, we're pretty close with those. And then, cause Joe's also in the wine business, right? So as a Psalm, he has crossover and he has, we have a ton of friends that are, he has a, he has a ton of friends who are Psalms. And so, you know, pulled into that circle. So my hobby, his career, the crossovers of all of them and carrying it through, I mean, I sometimes worry that the fact that there's a wine, bottle of wine open at dinner every single night is bad influence on my kids. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, well, it works in Europe. It's right. It does. So they, oh, it's uh, just part of the job. <laughs> part of the job. Actually, when he was testing, it was awesome. But, you know, I mean, there were always bottles. But he, <laughs> then he would quiz me. He's like, is it young or old? And I'm like, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I would be so tense that I would be afraid that I would get the wrong answer. Um, it was so much pressure for me and him. I mean, never mind that he had to actually do it. I felt so much pressure. <laughs> Kim, you've, this has kind of come up a couple of times, but you've um, referenced that being up in the Northeast and Rhode Island specifically, um, that it can be difficult to be a foodie. Um, other than the fact that Rhode Island is the ocean state, uh, and it has seafood readily available. Uh, is it difficult to be a foodie in Rhode Island? I actually think it's really easy to be a foodie in Rhode Island. We have a we have a really gorgeous food movement, and it's kind of put Rhode Island on the map in terms of how Providence has come back. Uh, it really is impressive, both in terms of the number of farms that we have, access to fresh produce, fresh meats. Uh, as well as fresh seafood for sure. Uh, you know, it is one of the things they're doing right now during the pandemic is we can actually go buy directly from the fishermen right off the dock, which normally you had to go, it had to come in, get processed and go through. Um, every now and then you might, you might just happen to be in the parking lot of the local fish store and a guy might just happen to be coming in with fish and you could be like, hey. <laughs> And you might be able to grab something or you could check in with some of your your chefs to say, hey, what did you guys pick up today? Um, but the best stuff truly hits the local restaurants first. It's one of the reasons why the restaurants and the farmers are struggling right now. But it 
for me personally, I, we have kind of developed a system. We usually do a CSA or two CSAs a year, depending where we either do a share, half share, quarter share, depending on which farm we're getting it from. Um, and then we do. Excuse me, Kim, for a second, can you explain what a CSA is? Sure. So it's a, it's a, it's basically a, um, a customer share of a farm association. So if it's a poultry farm, you can get usually a three, six, nine, 12 month share. You can do um, with uh, animals or uh, farms that process animals like beef or pork. Uh, you can do like half a cow or half a pig or something like that. And you can have it cut into the chops that you want. Um, so it's directly to the farmer. So as opposed like as sort of a life tenant, we about 10 years ago, very specifically, I simply stopped buying anything that was um, large scale processed meat. So if it came from a big brand, we simply, we won't eat it. We don't touch it. Um, about 20% of our stuff of the food, because I have kids and we still have to deal with granola bars and sometimes they get annoyed when I only buy organic granola bars, you know, so there's, there's some give and take there on a few things, but um, from a, from a meat and vegetable perspective, everything for us in our home is local, locally sourced. Um, we nothing packaged and Rhode kind of cool in the sense that they've done a lot over the past decade to bring back, back some local processing. So Rhode Island for a long time, I think um, animals used to have to go to New York and elsewhere. And now we actually have um, two facilities in Rhode Island where the animals can go. So we actually never even have to leave the state, which is less traumatic for them and all that jazz. So, but I, you know, it's, I have a, I have, I have a hardcore belief that the animals have a better life I've tried sort of the no animal approach. It does not fly in my household. Um, I try to go at least one night of no meat and I force my family to eat fish at least three. So, <laughs> um, but everything, you know, when we're cooking and then over the years, Joe's picked up cooking too. So he's started adding, he has a couple of things. He's really great following a recipe as long as it's really explicit. If it's a, I've left this behind, I'm going to be late at work. I get about, oh, I don't know, 50 texts maybe about what's the next step in something. So uh, I've, you know, gotten pretty good at everything in terms of how to put a meal together and, you know, where to get it from. Um, even when things went kind of sideways here early in this, the, the, the lockdown, it was actually really easy still to walk up to the farms and get supplies. The farms were doing really, like they had a lot of stuff, especially once they couldn't get stuff into the restaurants. So that sort of mindset of the way we're eating translates to everything tastes better, truly. Like there is a, there's a quick, clear quality difference between if I go to my mom's to eat, oh my God, please don't let this go out on the internet <laughs> too far, versus if I could. So- um, We won't give her the link to watch this. It's good. <laughs> So, so Kim, kind of um, just sort of jumping off on that idea that, you know, obviously you can go to your share of restaurants, but it's, you know, the, the Lancaster kitchen where, you know, all this stuff that you're buying and, you know, sourcing, sourcing from the local farms and your own uh, garden and everything like that. Um, there's that investment side of, you know, oh, yeah. in, investing in your, your kitchen and your utensils and things like that, the appliances. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've evolved your your kitchen practices and um, and your utensils over the years. Oh yeah, absolutely. So the uh, I have um, 
a wolf stove. I have a 42 inch um, dual burner stove. So it's a hybrid gas and electric. So it's convection. So I can do air when I want it. And I have uh, six burners in the built-in griddle. Um, it's pretty much always dirty. I always have to be cleaning it. So cleaning tools are actually a pretty big investment in terms of trying to get the splatter off of the grill. So um, that, and then I am a, I like my pans. I have old pans that are, you know, 50 plus years old of, you know, ironclad that I were taken from my grandmother's kitchen. Some of those are still some of the best ones where you can take it from the top of the stove and put it in, you know, my, I have really old lodge. Um, I have this, actually, I think they're posted on Instagram on the Easter holiday and we, there's a recipe that's kind of come down through the years of, they're called cinnamon sticks and you bake dough, you roll it out with cinnamon, sugar, butter, and you cook it. But the key to it is this pan. And so I looked it up and the pan's over a hundred years old. So, and it's, it is so heavy that it's one of those things that you go to pick it up and it, like, if you hand it to somebody who's never held it, they go, whoa. So my son was like, he's like, well, mom, it would be so much better if we could make more of these at one time. <laughs> of course, 14, right? So he's like, we need more food faster, mom. And <laughs> so we like went on eBay to look it up and it was, you know, if you could find one, it was about a hundred dollars to find that pan in particular. Um, I love the, the creuset, the French, you know, dishes of the, um, the heavy, the heavy uh, iron pans with the coatings and the colors. I love the colors. And so I have a big spend there. Um, a lot of all clads. My knife collection is a combination of old to new. We have a great guy here in Wakefield though, who you can drop off all your knives, knives to, and for 20 bucks you get them all back and they're sharp like brand new. So that's amazing. Also his, I don't even know what you call it, space that you walk through is just laden with things that are really sharp hanging all around you. So it's, it's kind of an experience. Uh, kind of like that scene in Twister where they walked in the... <laughs> but also dishwashers. We're a dual dishwasher household. So when I, when I did the kitchen in this house, I like now when you cook as much and entertain and we have people there, uh, the dual dishwasher, that's a big deal. And then last year I got my first outdoor kitchen. We did that. That was a project that we've been working on for three years and we finished it last year. So I have a massive, I think it's like 48 inches grill outside with side burners. So in the summer, I don't have to get my kitchen dirty. I can do it all outside. <laughs> And then I just make wow. the kids wash everything off with the hose and let the dog wash the plates. Boom, we're done. <laughs> Kim, we, we do have to ask, since we do have you, uh, and um, you're um, a respected PR pro in our industry, um, what are some of the things that integrators can do to better market uh, and publicize their businesses without spending a lot of money these days? Oh, they should be doing social. I mean, you know, there's stuff that they can do for themselves all the time. It's, you know, I think one of the things that we all learned as anything gets tough or people are locked down is they're always online, right? I look at, I look at my phone and I look at how much time I'm on my phone now versus maybe how much I was two months ago or even when I was traveling for business. And I can see myself doing it. I'm watching more kitchen cooking videos and things like that. So I'm turning to things that interest me. So 
people who are in thinking about renovations or thinking about maybe they're thinking about adding smart lighting or distributed audio or maybe they're thinking about summertime and what they're going to do for entertainment out in the backyard you know these are stories that dealers right now can be posting as you know how they do it stories from their projects i mean we've over the years have, have taught classes at Cedia, but we've always said, hey guys, do your case studies, right? Whether you're gonna put it on your website, it's always content that you can use in your social, on your site, um, in your different portfolio pieces. It's pieces you can send to potential customers. These are things you can put out anytime, but I know they all say, I don't have the time, right? They don't have the time to do it. They have the time probably right now, maybe a little more than they usually do, so it's a great way to do it, but it's, um, we've said one of the big tips for all dealers is have a, have a clause in your contract right from the start with your customer that says what, you, what you'll give them for privacy, if you can get photos, um, and if you can talk about the project that they do within the house. And they don't have to disclose names or address. You can always work with the customer on that along the way. But if you ask up front, it's much easier than going back. Right. And so, and most people will say yes to you taking some photos and talking about the work that they did for you as, and using photos as an example to support that. So, I mean, I have my own local dealer here and we do that for him all the time. So it's, it's really simple if you build a good relationship with your customer to be able to do that. And then as the dealer, that's a constant source for you to put out content, right? If you've taken 24 photos across a house, across a project that you've done, you can drop a line in, drop the photo. You can always have the case study on your website. You can always be linking back and that's driving leads, right? So you're thinking about local for them. I mean, most of our dealers that we all know, you know, they tend to work in an area. So it might be a hundred miles. Um, they can set up all the parameters within their own social to say, okay, this is the people that I want to see this work. Um, but it's, you know, that sort of word of mouth experience that also comes of other people talking about you. So maybe that customer likes it on Facebook and maybe they share it and their neighbor across town or their friend across town sees it and they say, oh, Tom, I didn't know you did that. So, hey, we want to talk to your guy and we want speakers in our backyard or, you know, we want to um, add shade control. So it, it just, I think it's, they just have to think about it and it's a great source. I know so many dealers, I mean, we did this over the years with so many clients who have gotten leads that have come off their social or case study. Um, and then they can send them also into you guys, <laughs> right? Yeah, we love case studies, you yeah. know, and, and we know that dealers like seeing uh, other work that other dealers have done. They just like look, looking at others, others projects and you know, saying, oh, that was, you know, they could bring cool ideas to their own company by seeing what, what their competitors are doing. So we yeah, know that they like they elevate that. their work. I mean, I follow a lot of dealer sites and I'm always like, oh, that's really cool. Like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, there were a couple of dealers who talked about, you know, easy basement renovations during this time of, you know, you never had the time to do it. Maybe now is the time. And with their essential um, designation, they were able to do it. And a lot of dealers had product supplies. So I think we're going to be surprised that we're going to see some deal, new dealer projects that pop up of what they were able to do during all this. So it's, yeah, I think so. We're certainly hoping to to see that. Yeah, I think so. Kim, uh, before you know, before we let you go, can you also can you remind everyone where they can learn more about you and your company? And then can you yeah. also share with us, you know, just some of your maybe um, top 
two or three favorite dishes that you like doing, getting back to the uh, the foodie aspect and even a, a restaurant around one of the Cedia um, locations, if you have a favorite. Oh, so Cedia always changes. Um, so, okay, so where to start? Um, favorite dishes. So favorite dishes for me right now, because I always kind of go with what's in season. So um, Striper's coming in hot, right? Local Striper. So, you know, take Striper and you hand sear it with uh, some shallots, some ghee, lemon, get that bottom crisp, but make sure it's nice and moist on top. Right, and you just, if you watch it as it starts to split just a little bit, let it come off the, the stove, let it rest so it won't fall apart on you. You know, and then I'll always, I don't know, could be some rice if we're, kids are eating with us and some, you know, mixed veggies or we'll do a big spinach salad. But if we're in the heart of the summer, then we're just pulling what's in the garden. So, you know, zucchini, tomatoes, broccoli, um, one of my go-tos all winter long, and kids love it, is uh, local chicken legs and thighs in the cast iron in the oven, also cooked with garlic, shallots, carrots, um, strong citrus like lemon or orange, and uh, lots of salt and pepper. And it just throw it in the oven, and it'll do all the work for you. You know, add your herbs on top, whatever you prefer, sage, thyme, could be rosemary, and everybody eats it you know, throw it over mashed potatoes, but also it was super little work, right? So I'm always kind of balancing the food that tastes really, really good with how much time it's, how much time to prep it and then how much to uh, clean up. I hate clean up. Clean up is the bane of, it's why chefs are chefs. They don't want to have to clean up, <laughs> right? So uh, in terms of restaurants, you know, it's funny. Every year I look and see what's new. So just because there's good restaurants in where CD is, doesn't mean I'm always going back to them. So I am hard pressed right now to remember what was in Denver, uh, but around here in Rhode Island, if you want to do some visiting and come see us, um, my favorite restaurant in Newport right now is called TSK, 18th Street Kitchen. Um, they're also doing takeout, which is super fun, but they do, uh, usually every night when they're open, they'll do uh, cuts so they'll have, they'll have prime cuts from a local farm and they'll do those as well as uh the fish whatever fish they got in that day so it will change you know might be line cut caught point to swordfish or um it could be a local halibut so you just don't know what it's going to be and you know they'll do all the fixing so that is great in newport up in providence Oh, that one's tougher because there's truly so many. Um, there's Toulouse Tacos. If you just want to have like great tacos or burritos, true street food. The, uh, the founders from El Paso. So super authentic, really amazing food. Um, Nick's on Broadway for just all around great dinner. Just never a bad experience. So those are ones that like, if you come, in, if you come to visit me, those are good places to go eat if you're gonna hit off my list. Um, where you can find me, where you can find me. So you can always find me at castercom.com. Around here, it's usually first name at castercom.com or first initial last name at castercom.com. And I'm on all the, all, the, all the socials. So usually Kimberly Lancaster or Kimberly D. Lancaster in the business setting, but I'm known as newscaster on Twitter. 
because I was way early in the game and I thought I was being so clever, but then you can't get verified when you use a nickname, so that bit me in the butt. But, oh well, I wouldn't give up Newscaster, come on. Who, you, who, how do you get that? So I've even tried to make my, ex, my explanation of why it's such a great handle, but anyway. All right. Well, thank Kimberly at Lancaster from Caster Communications. Again, thank you so much for your time and your insights about uh, both the PR and the food world. Thanks, guys.